Um, we are really wrapping up something that was intended to be wrapped up on December 26th. We had, you know, the blizzard of 2010 here in the uh, Charlotte area and just shut the whole city down. It was crazy if you weren't here. It was amazing. But um, so, so we're back today to wrap up what we intended to wrap up on the 26th. And so you got to think about where we are contextually in the year. We're at the end of the year. Well, I know it's January 9th, but really it's December 26th in our mentality as we're planning this service. We're at the end of a year, uh, right on the threshold of something new starting. And really want to invite you to think about kind of where you've been and where you're going this year. Okay? So that's really what we're going to try to do. Think about where we've been and where we're going. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting, sort of a historical parallel would be to think about... <clears throat> The period between 1933 and 1940, there were six World's Fairs. Millions of Americans flocked to six World's Fairs during that seven-year period. Now, you know about the New York Fair. You know about the Chicago Fair. But there was also a fair in Cleveland. There was also a fair in San Diego, in San Francisco, and in Dallas. And think about what was happening. You know, people were were clawing their way out of the Great Depression. They had kind of gone into their cave, if you will, to survive. You know, how do we just survive to live the next day? And it was time to call people out of the cave. It was time to invite people to go pursue something new. And so American engineering, manufacturing, and marketing firms conspired together to host these six vision-casting opportunities. And what they were doing is they were casting a vision of a new era of consumption. They put all these exciting new products on display that was going to make your life and my life more meaningful and exciting. Things like the electric dishwasher and the electronic calculator and the electric typewriter. You know, no longer would you have to pound pound the keys, you know, now it's going to be electric and it was be exciting. You know, these were the new products that were calling us out of our caves to pursue this new vision of consumption in America. As I read this story, this historical account, if you will, of this period, it struck me that that's kind of a default setting that we all live with. We, we want to live with purpose. And once the, the survival baseline is accomplished, you know, we know what we're going to eat tomorrow. We know we've got a roof over our heads and clothes to wear. Once the Because that's the first purpose that we all, you know, probably live for. How do I survive? Okay, I've got survival taken care of. Now what? And the default setting that we move to most naturally is just consumption to strive and reach for the next level of consumption. Because we were made to live with purpose, and our hearts will find something to live for, something to put their hope in, something to put their affections on, even if it's just the next greatest, biggest, but thinner, faster refreshing, higher resolution, flat screen, high definition television. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm pro-consumption. You know, I love my smartphone. I thought I was over ever wanting a new car again. I thought kind of financially I had kind of made that shift. And then all of a sudden this commercial appeared on television with this smartphone app that allows you to 
crank your car from remote locations. And I thought, I got to have that, you know, and, and there's no way to backwards fit it onto my car. So I got to have a new car now. So, I mean, I'm good with consuming. I just don't want it to be the purpose that I live for, right? But that's the default settings that we'll run to. We'll either survive or we'll consume unless we intend something different. Consumption is a poor substitute for purpose, and yet consumption or survival will be the default we drift to unless we intend something different. So, given the fact that we're kind of at this transitional period, let's just think for a minute, how have you lived the last 12 months? What would characterize the way you've lived the last 12 months? Has it been about survival? Has it been about consumption? Or have you been pursuing an intentional purpose? You know, for everybody in the room, regardless of where you find yourself on a spiritual journey, at the beginning, years into it, it really doesn't matter. Wherever you are, I really want to encourage you, want to invite you, even challenge you to some degree to live for something that extends beyond the normal product life cycle. You know, live for something that's substantive and sustainable. You know, invest your life with passion and purpose around something of substance and meaning. Because that echo of purpose exists inside of each one of us, I believe, because the God who made us, the God who loves us, created us to live with purpose. And if that's the case then the question we want to ask is, what does God intend for our lives? What would it look like? Just think about it this way. What would it look like to align our lives with the purpose of God for the gospel to be communicated relationally and intelligibly to people in our city and around the world? What would it look like for us to align our lives with God's purpose of having the gospel relationally and intelligibly communicated in our city and around the world. To give us a framework in the Bible, we're going to look at one particular passage from the book of Acts. Acts tells the story of the early church. And it's particularly focused, at least for most of the uh, kind of the middle chapters and on, around a guy... uh, by the name of Paul, and we refer to him a lot here because he wrote much of what we have in our New Testament, you know, and so he's a significant figure in the early advancement of the church. Now, to give you some context about who this guy is, he starts his life on the scene in the Bible as a resistor to the church. He's actually one of the major opponents of the church, and while he's moving from one place to another to kind of uh, find, harass, arrest, abuse, resist the efforts of the church, the movement of the gospel through new cities. He's moving from one city to another to be a resistor to the church, to be an opponent of the gospel. On that road to Emmaus, he's confronted by Jesus. Jesus, in, you know, after his death and after his resurrection, confronts Paul personally. And in that encounter, Paul moves from opponent of the gospel to one who's been transformed by the gospel and now begins to live a life of new purpose. 
And that new purpose involves taking the gospel from city to city uh, around that known world that he lived in at that time. So he's a major player in the early advancement of the church. And what we have in Acts 20, verse 24, really kind of the passage that surrounds this verse, is a speech that he gives to a group of elders in the church in Ephesus. Acts 19 and Acts chapter 20 kind of tell the story of Paul's involvement in the city of Ephesus, how he planted and started a church there. He was there for about three years. You know, a group gathered around him. A church was established. It had some elders. And he's ready to move on. And before he moves on, he has sort of a commencement address with this group of elders. Now, it's a reverse commencement because it's not about the, the teacher telling the students, now go into the world and take what I've given you here over these last few years and you extend the work. It's the teacher saying, I'm leaving, but I want you to stay behind and continue what I've started. And so as he's doing this, as he's giving his reverse commencement speech, so to speak, he unveils this guiding sense of purpose that has fueled his passion and his courage. And so we see that in this passage in Acts chapter 20. We'll start in verse 17 and read to the kind of the the pinnacle of the passage, which is verse 24. So from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the uh, province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the uh, plots of my Jewish opponents. You can read in other parts of the Bible what Paul experienced, beatings, imprisonments, you know, left for dead at times as he was pursuing this purpose that he had received directly from Jesus. So you, you saw exactly how I lived my life. I served the Lord with great humility, with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the essence of his message. Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, to reconcile you back into a relationship with the God who made you. And the way you receive that is just what it says. You must turn to God in repentance. God, I want to go your way, not my way, and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You are my only hope. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, and this is sort of the transition to the focus for this morning. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now think about that. I mean, just look at verse 24. You know, it's right there in the middle of the screen. He says, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work that has been given to me by the Lord Jesus. 
He's got a new metric for the way he's going to evaluate whether or not his life has been well lived, right? How are we going to evaluate? Has my life been invested well or poorly? Paul says, I've got a new way I'm measuring that. And I'm measuring it in light of whether or not I've used my life to finish the work that has been assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. In, in, a, in another part of the New Testament, he, he talks about pressing forward to, to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's this kind of this push in his life to complete the work that he was given by God. So a new metric for the way he's going to evaluate the, 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 uh, the value of his life, the value of a life well lived. He, he talks about this purpose that God has given us in terms that are both general and, and personal. It's a general directive. Take the gospel to all the nations. That's really, that's the work that has been left to us. That's the work that's been assigned to us to take the gospel, starting from wherever we are, whether we're starting in Beijing or starting in Charlotte, to take the gospel from wherever we are and taking, taking it to all the nations. Uh, the purpose is very general. There's a general directive, but it's also very personal because he talks about the work that was assigned to him what I received from the Lord Jesus. So there's something about this work that we've been given that's consistent with who we are and our passions and our gifts and our temperaments and the things and, and, and our capacity. And, and so it's, it's both general, take the gospel to all the nations, and it's very personal. And here's how I want you to play a part in that bigger purpose. And he's ultimately always looking to Jesus as the example that he's going to follow. He received or was assigned this, this, uh, this sense of purpose, this ministry, this direction from Jesus himself. And so this passage gives us some glimpse into the guiding purpose that sort of fueled Paul's courage and passion. Now, how does this fit into this series that we're talking about, uh, yoke? Well, we want to be yoked to God's purpose. We want to be yoked to God's purpose. Part of being yoked to Christ is being yoked to his pur purpose. And he said, my, my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, that's confusing to me when I just told you about Paul's life because I talked about imprisonments and beatings and being left for dead. I mean, that doesn't sound light and easy, right? I mean, that sounds difficult and heavy. <clears throat> but somehow we've got to reconcile Paul's life of purpose with this promise that Jesus makes that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. And I think it's really built into the passage because we're, we're talking about aligning ourselves with God's work. And when we align ourselves with God's work, we can extend ourselves. We can extend ourselves in, in ways that, that we don't even imagine that we're, we're capable of doing. As we align ourselves with what God is doing, we can extend ourselves expecting God to resource and replenish and renew and refresh us along the way. When we get in line with God's purpose, we're not rallying Jesus to our agenda. We're getting ourselves aligned with what he's doing in the world. And we can expect him to show up with resource and refreshing and replenishing and renewing over and over and over again. Now, I think about it this way. I love the moving sidewalk at the airport, right? So when you get on the moving sidewalk, are you a 
a walk and ride or a stand and ride. So if you're a walk and ride, uh, raise your hand. So you get on the moving sidewalk and you, and you walk. Okay, if you're stand and ride, just keep your hands down because we know you're lazy and you don't want to <laughs> extend yourself that way, right? So, but no, I love to walk and ride uh, as I'm, I'm on that moving sidewalk because it's the only time in my life that I ever feel fast, right? Because <clears throat> I'm not, you know, you know, the, the, um, and so, so when I'm walking on that sidewalk and I'm like, wow, I'm just, I'm just floating, man. I'm just, I'm so quick, you know, and just, it's effortless, you know, and um, because I feel fast because I'm moving along with the momentum of the sidewalk. It's carrying me with its momentum as well. And that's exactly what it means to be aligned with God's purpose. This is his work. Paul said, I received this work from Jesus. This is what he's doing. I'm just a part of his accountability. And so my, I'm walking in the context of the momentum of what he's doing. And so I can be confident that he's going to resource and replenish me as I extend myself in fulfilling his purpose. There was a story in the Old Testament about a lady who was preparing her final meal. She had a son she had a little bit of meal, a little bit of oil. She was gathering some sticks to build a fire so she could make the last little loaf of bread so they could have a final meal, and then they were going to just die. That was it. It was the end of the, of the road. And along came one of God's prophets, a guy named Elijah, and he said, uh, God wants you to bake that bread for me. And she said, what are you talking about? I mean, I've barely got enough for my son and I just to have a little nibble here before we die of starvation. I can't give you anything. And he said, trust me, trust God. God wants you to provide this meal for me. And so she does it in obedience and in faith. She goes into that bag, pulls out the last bit of meal, pours in the last bit of oil, bakes the, the cake for the, for the prophet. He eats and is satisfied. She eats and is satisfied. Her son eats and is satisfied. And the next day, there's more meal and there's more oil for the next meal for them to share together. And the next day, and the next day, somehow, God makes the resources stretch. As she gives in faith out of her limited resources, her resources are not diminished. And that's exactly what we can expect as we extend ourselves in fulfilling God's purposes. He shows up and enables us along the way because this is his work and we're a part of what he's doing. And, and we also see, as Paul saw himself in this passage, as a participant in a, in a bigger community fulfilling this purpose of God. We're one participant in a marathon relay, and therefore we can do what God has called us to do, knowing that there are many others participating, participating with us in this work. He said, I want to finish my race. You know, I've got my leg to run. And I know there's going to be, there are people that ran before me. And there are many people who are going to run after me. And I'm part of a bigger community pursuing an epic outcome. And so I'm going to run my race. There's a group of people at Warehouse that once a year collect together. They're called Kicking Asphalt. And they once a year run the Blue Ridge Relay, which is a 24-hour race, or it happens within a 24-hour period, where up to 12 people on a team run 208 miles. I don't get it but they seem to enjoy it, okay? <laughs> but think about that. 208 miles covered inside, on foot, you know, covered inside a 24-hour period. No individual on the team could have co accomplished that by their individual effort. But together, 
They each run their individual leg and accomplish their individual course that allows the team to accomplish the ultimate course. And I talked to Kurt Graves, who kind of pulls the team together and is a part of the team at least. And, uh, you know, I asked him, just give me the details because I want to talk about this in in, in the talk on Sunday. And and, uh, he said, you know, it's it's a great experience because I think we want to get out of our kind of a sense that we're a part of, we're, we're, sort of be, we're supposed to be superheroes who fly in with a cape and on our individual, on the basis of our individual effort, stand up and confront evil. You know, we want to be a part of an epic pursuit, yes, but we want to do it in the context of a community. And crossing that finish line, passing the baton, and then ultimately accomplishing the full, you know, 208 miles as a team is just an incredible experience. And that's the kind of experience that Paul saw himself as being a part of and that we're invited to be a part of, a part of a community uh, extending ourselves together to fulfill God's purpose on the earth. So Paul is seeing himself pursuing God's purpose with the confidence that God's going to replenish and renew and refresh even in the face of difficulty and hardship and that he's doing that in the context of a bigger community. He's running his leg in a bigger relay. And he says, that's really all that matters to me. You know, my only aim is to fulfill the purpose, to complete the work that I've been given by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we kind of turn the dial on a new year and begin to think about how we're going to live this year versus the way we lived last year, we want to see ourselves living in pursuit of an intentional purpose. That's really what this life is all about, that we've been invited to by God. To move beyond just survival and to see something as an alternative other than just consuming the next big thing and to find ourselves living for something that has a life beyond the normal product life cycle. To live with, for something that's global and eternal. So what would that look like? What would that look like for you and for me to align ourselves with God's purpose? What would it look like? If you're ready to sign on to live this year on a different trajectory from survival or consumption, then what would it look like to live in line with God's purpose? And remember, Paul said, I'm I'm following Jesus in this. This is what I received from him. And so we have him as a model, as an example that we can look to. So, so how did Jesus live his life on the earth? You know, how did he demonstrate for us what it looks like to live a life of purpose? Now, we're, li- we're reading through the New Testament this, this year with Pro- uh, Project 345. Right now, we're reading through the Gospel of John. As you read through the Gospels, certainly you see all the things that Jesus did. You know, the people he helped. The, the messages he taught, you know, the people he healed, the people he fed. You see all the things that he did. But if you step back and kind of look at the panoramic, you see not just what he did, but what he was doing. And when we look at what Jesus was doing, I think we see a few things sort of emerge that give us direction in terms of what it would mean for us to align our lives with God's purpose. And so I just want to highlight a couple of them for you right now just to make this very practical, and then we'll wrap up. Jesus, when we look at what he was doing, kind of in the biggest picture, Jesus was loving the world. I mean, 
God so loved the world, one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus came out of and because of the heart of God for the whole world. When Jesus was feeding thousands with a little boy's lunch and healing people along the way, he had in his peripheral view a picture that we read later on in the New Testament of a global congregation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group gathered around the throne of God, worshiping God. He had that in view because he loved the world. Before the internet linked Mumbai with Memphis or Nagasaki with North Charleston, Jesus was a globalizer. He had globalization in his scope. The movement that we're invited into, the purpose that God has invited us to be a part of is global in scale. Practically, if you're going to be aligned with God's purpose, you need to be aligned with his heart for the world. You know, how am I, God, how, how have you called me to love the world? We live in Charlotte, North Carolina. We're, we're, we're planted here in the Camp Green community. These are our primary accountabilities. This is where we are. But, but we always keep the world in view. So how can you be a part of what God is doing in the world? We have things happening here at Warehouse. We have income-generating activities going on in Zimbabwe. You can be a personal part of that. You know, there are teams planting churches in cities all over the world, and maybe you'd make an investment in something like that. Or maybe, you know, you would choose to live in the context of an unreached people group as an agent of gospel transformation there in that context. You know, so whether you're investing in, a, in an income-generating activity or supporting a missionary in a, in a city somewhere that you may never visit, or you're living yourself personally planted in the context of an unreached people group, you can be a part of loving the world. That's what God is calling us to. Love the world. Jesus loved the world. And living a life yoked to Jesus includes loving the world. We're connected to this global movement of gospel transformation. But we all, so that's what Jesus was doing. He was loving the world. But as he was loving the world, he was helping many. I mean, you can think about the stories. You've probably heard them enough or maybe read the New Testament before, and so you, you, you've, you've heard the stories of Jesus' life, of, of how he did feed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch of bread and fish. He was helping them. They didn't have anything to eat. He helped them. He gave them lunch. You know, you, you, you can read a story in the, in the Gospels about Jesus rescuing a party planner from a terrible outcome. It was a wedding reception. And somebody had done poor planning in terms of resources and the number of people that were going to show up, and they ran out of wine. And there's no other reason to have a wedding reception if you run out of wine, right? I mean, there's only two reasons I go to a band, open bar, and, and, a, and, a, and a, go to a wedding, and it's an open bar and a band. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the way it works. But the, um, so, so they were about to, you know, the party was crashing and burning, but he helped. He rescued that party. So, and, and you see, you hear stories of him helping people along the way that were sick, you know, couldn't walk, couldn't see, couldn't hear. And he's, so he's helping many. But what's interesting is when Jesus finishes his time on earth, 
disease, hunger, poverty, strife remain. He helped many, but he didn't solve every problem. As amazing as the work Jesus did is, <laughs> as amazing as that is, so amazing is the work that he left undone. And so what Jesus the man is illustrating for us, he is God the man, Jesus the man is illustrating for us, is that God is calling us to help, help many, you know, to, be a, be a, to stand in some gap. We don't have to stand in every gap, but stand in some gap. Is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a statement in, in the Old Testament. It's one of the most tragic statements in the Bible. It says <clears throat> that God kind of surveyed the land looking for one person who would stand in the gap for the city, and he found no one. Is the gap that God is calling you to stand in empty? Because aligning ourselves with God's purpose certainly involves loving the world, but it also involves helping somewhere, you know, someone standing in some gap. Some of you are standing in too many gaps, and you need to give a few gaps up. But some of you aren't standing in any gaps, and you need to find a gap and stand there. Jesus helped many. We have ways to do that here. We're going to talk about it in the announcement time uh, that, that you know, we try to make available to you ways that you can help, you know. God hasn't called us to solve every problem, but he's called us to be a solution in some problems, to stand in some gaps. And living yoked to Jesus' purpose includes helping many. He loved the world. He helped many. But at the core of what Jesus was doing, in the context of loving the world, in the context of helping many, he was discipling a few. He was investing himself intentionally in a few people. In the New Testament, it's the Gospel of Mark. There's a statement that sort of unveils, to some degree, what Jesus was doing. Because it says in this uh, statement from the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus chose 12, so a few, from among the many that he had helped, so that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. So send them out to extend this message of generous grace offered in the gospel. So he was loving the world, and as he loved the world, he helped many. And as he helped many, this big crowd of people began to gather around him. And out of that crowd, he said, I need a few that I'm going to invite to be with me in a unique way so that they can see how I think, so they can see how I make decisions, so they can see what's important to me so they can understand sort of what I'm doing behind the scenes so that they can extend the work when I'm gone. I'm going to invest in a few and multiply my life through their lives. We need to be engaged. If we're going to be aligned with God's purpose, we need to be engaged in the process of making disciples. Some of us are in a position where we need to say, hey, I need somebody to help me. I'm new to this, or this is a restart for me. You know, I've hit the refresh button. I want to start kind of in a new way in my relationship with God, and I need some help. I need to get my legs under me. I need to know what to do. I mean, I, you know, I, I just need some help, and that's great. You know, that's exactly where you are, and that's exactly where you need to be. And the thing that you need to do is find someone to invest to say, I'll help you kind of along the way. 
there's actually a connecting card in your seat that's one of the ways that you can say, hey, I need some help. I'm, I'm, I, that's exactly where I am, and that's exactly what I want. And you can put that on the card, and we'll help connect you to someone who can invest in you. But some of us need to put on that connecting card. I'm ready to make an investment in someone else. I have been helped along the way, and I'm ready to begin to make, start making disciples. But regardless of whether we need to become a disciple or make a disciple, to be aligned with God's purpose is to be a part of the process of making disciples. Now think about how all of this strategy sort of fits together. Jesus loved the world, and in order to see the gospel taken to every part of the world, for the gospel to get here and for the gospel to go all over the world, Jesus discipled a few. Now how does that make sense? Because he knew that if he could invest in a few, and as we said about, you know, from 2 Timothy, Paul to Timothy to others also, you know, faithful men to others also, that there's this marathon relay of baton passing from generation to generation, and there'd be something exponential that would kick in, and we would see the gospel spread, like, you know, across the globe. If one would invest in a few who would in turn invest in a few more, who would in turn invest in a few more, that there would be something exponential that would happen, and we could literally see the gospel penetrate every people group on the globe. We can love the world by investing in a few, and as we invest in a few, we do that in the context of helping many. You see, I believe that when Jesus fed that group of people in the, in the gospels, the story of feeding the thousands with a little boy's bread and fish, when Jesus did that, not only was he making sure that people didn't go home hungry, but he was teaching those few that he had called to be with him about faith-based problem solving. That when you've got a problem, you can look beyond you know, the resources that you kind of assume are available to you, and you can expect me to show up and do something supernatural. He was teaching them something in the context of helping many. So this fits together. Everything that we're, we're talking about, loving the world, investing in a few, helping many, it's an integrated way that Jesus was living his life, and we can align ourselves with God's purpose. So where are you in this continuum of, of investment? Are you in a place where you need to say, you know, hey, I need, some, I need some help. I need somebody to make an investment in me. I'm hungry. I'm ready. I just need some help. Put that on the connecting card. We'll get you connected to the right person. But maybe it's God saying, no, you need to be an investor. You know, you need to be a part of this process by making a disciple. And so I invite you to put that on there and get involved in the process of investing your life in others. Aligning ourselves with God's purpose. As Paul demonstrates in this sort of kind of pinnacle moment, this speech in Acts chapter 20, kind of the, the crescendo to verse 24, as Paul is demonstrating, aligning ourselves with God's purpose is aligning ourselves with his heart for the world, with the way he helped many, and his investment in a few, discipling a few. Now let's just wrap this up. Acts chapter 20, verse 24 from the message uh, is very interesting. That's something I do a lot of times when I'm studying the Bible is read the same verse or passages in, in a lot of different translations. And so the message is a different translation of the New Testament. And, and I read Acts chapter 20, verse 24, the same verse in the message. And this is what it says. It says, what matters most to me? This is Paul talking. What matters most to me is to finish what God has started. 
letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. That really struck me, just those words. What matters most to me? In fact, what I had to do was turn that into a question. You know, what does matter most to me? What matters most to you? You have ways to find out. You can look at your time. You know, you can look at where your money goes. You can look at what makes you happy, what makes you sad, what makes you angry, what frustrates you, what scares you. I mean, you kind of get some views through your emotions, your money, your time, you know, into what matters most to you. But Paul is saying, and really what we're inviting you to this morning is to align what matters most with you with what matters most to God. Because when our hearts are aligned with God's heart, the things that matter most to God will matter most to us. And I'll tell you, what matters to God is that global congregation we described that's pictured for us late in the New Testament of people from every conceivable people group on the earth, and there are thousands gathered around that throne, worshiping God. That's what matters most to God. What matters most to you? Let's pray together. God, cause what matters most to you to matter most to me. I want to invite you to pray that prayer. I don't, I don't think it's my privilege to pray that on your behalf. I think that's a prayer that, that from our own hearts and our own words, from our own soul, we have to ask God, align my heart with your heart. So I just give you a moment to pray that prayer. God, make what matters most to you matter most to me. And God, would you align my heart? Would you align this movement, this community with your heart to see people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation worshiping at your throne for all eternity? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.